and he would stand up on the porch and he would look out and he would count. Uh, he's uh-huh. like, I've got this many great grandbabies and this many great, great grandbabies and this many, and he would just count. And he was, you could tell it's, it's that like it was the counting absolute, your riches. Yes. Yeah. He was, he was like, and he was poor. I mean, they were poor their whole lives, hmm. but seeing him look out on all of these people, you would think that he was a king and that he was the richest man alive because of all of this. And it's not like everybody's perfect. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of drama in the family. It's a a normal human family. But the richness of that experience was so beautiful. Um, Just a powerful thing to, to see. That's, and when you're 20, you don't appreciate that. Yeah. And if you get to be 60, 70, and you didn't appreciate it when you're 20, and then you put it off and you, I mean, a lot of people now are posting online about, I don't need to get married. I'm happy traveling the world. And I've gotten, you know, all these things that I pamper myself with. I'm like, that's, that might be kind of fun in your twenties, but it's not cute when you're 60 years old, it's Christmas morning and you have no husband, no wife, no children, no grandchildren, nobody to visit you. You've got your dog or your cat and that's it. Yeah. Um, that's what we're missing. Welcome to Grounded. I'm Steve Hartland, pastor at Cornerstone Community Church here in Joppa, Maryland. And uh, today I have a guest. His name is Michael Clary, and uh, we're going to be talking about his book. Let me show you his book. There it is. The title of it is God's Good Design, subtitle, A Biblical, Theological, and Practical Guide to Human Sexuality. Yes, I've read the book. Really love it. That's how come we reached out to Michael to see if we can get him on here. One more thing about him. He is pastor of Christ the King Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. And Michael, say hi. Hi. <laughs> thanks for being here, man. We want to yeah, do a little thanks. bio first. Just let us know a little bit about yourself. I think you're married. I think you have some kids. Just talk about all that a little bit, would you? Yeah, my wife and I have been married for 24 years. Um, you look 25. old enough. Yeah. <laughs> yesterday was my birthday. I turned 49 years old. Oh, old man. Yeah. Happy birthday. No, a lot of mileage on these tires. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, we have four kids. My oldest is 18. She's a daughter. She just started college um, this fall. I have three sons after that that are 17, almost 15, and 12. And yeah. yeah, we, we live about, we, my church is in kind of the downtown urban area and I live about a mile from here in the city, raised my family in the city. Um, been kind of a wild ride, but I bet. yeah. Yeah. Well, you're definitely in the heavy financial drain years of having kids, aren't you? Oh yeah. Schools and colleges <laughs> and food and yeah. My, my son, uh, one, my one son plays football and oh. He's he's a big guy and he never stops he eating, does he? Never stops. Never stops. <laughs> so. Yeah, we we have four sons, no daughters. Four sons and we had a foster son too. And man, they would bring all their friends home after swim practice or water polo after school and they're all starving and they would just clean yep. us out. It's like piranha came into the room. And it's all gone. That's right. It was crazy. Yeah, so you're in yeah, those years. So I also read in your bio, I read your bio on your church website and it said, at least when that was written, that you also have a dog. Do you do you still have that dog? Yeah, I do. Her name is Nia. Nia. What kind of dog is Nia? Uh, she's a mutt. Uh, she's a a mix of German Shepherd and Lab. Uh, oh, that's that what, nice. Yeah, she's a 
just an easygoing dog and great, great to have a dog to have a puppy when the kids are little because the dog gets used to being around little kids. My my kids would wrestle with her, ride her like a pony, yeah. and now she, she's just a fantastic family dog. Um, very chill. We love yeah. her. Talking dog reminds me of some of those southern phrases that use the word dog to mean like when they say, Oh, I don't have a dog in that race. Yeah. Or that dog don't hunt, or some yeah. of those dogs. <laughs> just so you'll know, and other people know, our last dog, we've had mm, four or five dogs, I guess, but our last one was a black lab. His name was Boaz. That was kind of cool. That was a <laughs> conversation starter out in the park or yeah, out by sure. the river. Boaz. And he, he left us and went to doggy heaven. There isn't one. About uh, 16 years ago. And man, I loved Boaz. So much so that I actually said to Debbie a couple of days ago, I wonder if we could find a really good painting of a black lab hmm. and put it on our wall somewhere. So <laughs> uh, dogs, dogs are awesome, man. Why not get a dog though? You could just get another well, dog. Well, where we live. So we moved in this little community where you have a postage size front yard and all that. And yeah, it's just not a yeah, great place. I get that. That makes sense. Yeah. Plus Boaz really shed, man. Like I still yeah. occasionally open a book and there's a black dog hair in there. <laughs> all these years later. 16 years ago. <laughs> All right, we're coming back to your book, God's Good Design. Let me read the subtitle one more time. A Biblical, Theological, and Practical Guide to Human Sexuality. There's nobody on our planet talking about human sexuality these days, is there? Why are we talking yeah. about this? I don't know. It's boring. There's, no, there's yeah. no need for it. It's not relevant at all. Not at all. So why, here's big, big overarching question. Why, Michael, why did you write this book? Like the, usually when you're writing a book, there's a problem you're trying to solve. There's a, there's a problem you're addressing. What are you trying to solve? What's the purpose of your book? Why did you write it? Go ahead. Yeah, that, that's a great question. The context that I minister in, I'm in an urban environment where about five, six blocks from the University of Cincinnati. So we've always had a lot of young people. Mm. Um, and I've found, and this has increasingly been true over the years, that a lot of people have not learned the things that our parents or grandparents generation took for granted. Um, and a lot of the issues of normal sexuality have been called into question. So you've got people that are ill-equipped to even understand some of the most basic things about sexuality. And whenever they're coming into a church and you're preaching from the Bible and you're speaking the Bible's words, they get nervous mm -hmm. and freak out. So I was thinking, I, I, I need to be able to give some kind of um, theology of sexuality that doesn't that goes beyond just here's what the rules are, but more of a why did God create it this way? Um, what was he trying to accomplish? What what is his design from the beginning? So that there is it, it, it's, it helps to make for the rules to not seem arbitrary um, hmm. and just, yeah, it, it's like there's a reason for it. And when you see the reason, then the design is beautiful. You see like, man, God is glorious and amazing. And the way he created us is fantastic. And the way men and women are different, the way we relate to each other and what, what men and women can do, like marriage that can build households. And you've got multiple generations and it fits into God's design of ruling, uh, exercising dominion over the world. All of these things are tied to the doctrine of sexuality. So it started as a class in my church. Um, and hmm. after I taught the class, I was thinking, you know, I could take these, this outline and, um, maybe do a series of blog posts or podcasts. 
Um, and the more I developed it, put it together, I just thought, you know, the only way for me to really make my case and to cover all of the, uh, the nuances and qualifications, because it is when people are really, when they're maybe about to get offended, you want to make sure that you're clear, like, this is what I'm saying. And this is what I'm not saying mm -hmm. to, to be able to, to cover all of that ground and to really paint the picture that I wanted to paint. I, it needed to be more of a book length treatment. So that's what I did. I started to shop to, uh, some pitch to a different, uh, group, several different publishers. And, uh, I found Reformation Zion publishing that had a reputation for publishing things that other people may not want to get into, uh, maybe some controversy. Um, but Reformations, I am are willing to take it on. And so here we are. Nice. It must be pretty cool. So young people from the university, a friend invites them, they come into your church, they walk into the lobby, and they get to talk about this issue. And, oh, well, our pastor wrote a book on that. Here it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. Well, I'm doing a member interview later on today. And, are you? And the, for this interview, it's like, I'm, I know this is something that, the people I'm interviewing are a little bit, it's like they, they agree with the doctrine. They're okay with the doctrine, but there's a, a desire to see like, well, how does all this fit together? Hmm. And that's, that's the, these are the people that I wrote it for. I had yeah. somebody ask me once like, well, would this be good for like, you know, college or high school age people? And I said, yes, yeah. that's, that's the perfect audience because you, the best thing is to, to kind of get a grounding in sexuality before you build a life upon false assumptions about what God's design is. And then you have to, it's very much more difficult to, to make adjustments. So it's good to solidify these things when they're young. And this couple that I'm interviewing, they're, they're a young couple. They recently married, haven't had kids yet. So I'm like, this is the, this is a great opportunity. So I want to give them a copy of the book whenever they get here and uh, just yeah, keep, man keep using it as foundational for people in my church. That's awesome. So in the book you talk about, and you, you just talked about this already a few moments ago, the beauty of God's design. I really like that. The beauty of God's design. Like it's not a horrible thing. It's not an oppressive thing. It's not a, it's going to rob you of your personhood and rob you of the image of God thing. And all. It's, it's a beautiful thing. A man being a man, a woman being a man. Oh, I'm sorry. A woman being a woman. <laughs> oh, man, our age is getting to me here, huh? That's right. Uh, this day we live in. So, uh, you know, and a family being what a family was made to be. It's made by God. It is beautiful. It's to be beautiful. We can rejoice in it, delight in it. Um, so you talk about that in the book and you just, you just mentioned it. Do you want to riff on that some more? Why is that important? Well, I think like we, you don't, whenever you don't see the beauty of something, one, it's harder to recognize a deviation from it as bad or harmful. If you don't know the standard that you're deviating against. Hmm. Um, but I think beyond that, um, I just think about there's there are so many things that are wonderful in the world, are wonderful about the human experience. The best things about the human experience are tied to family, uh, manhood, womanhood, uh, legacy, communities, like our deepest sense of belonging. And I think about how how many people that I know, I mean, like in my context, it's inner city type of context, and I drive around my neighborhood and I see these kids and I wonder... How many of these kids have ever, do, do any of them have a father and do mother intact yeah. in their home? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, if not, then you talk about the goodness of family or fatherhood and 
their conception of family is totally different. It's foreign. Um, so we need to understand what, why is being a father good? Why is being a mother good? What, how are father and mother, how do they relate to each other? How is that good? Um, and I, it was a, it was a wonderful thing for me that my, I, I my grandparents, actually, or my great grandparents, they were married for 74 years. My great grandfather lived to be 102 years old. Man. And so I, you know, I, and I start out the book just telling some stories about them. And I grew up going to their house and I saw the way that, and it's like they had their own quirks. Um, you know, I'd see them, you know, spat and argue at each other. And, but I'm like, they, 74 wedding anniversaries they That's celebrated crazy. before my grandmother died. Yeah. And how, and one of the things I remember is, uh, is being being at their house. It, it was a little country house that my grand great grandfather built. Hmm. Um, he built it himself back in 1920s during the Great Depression for four hundred and fifty dollars, <laughs> and thought that was a lot of money. Yeah, right. Yeah. He probably like, was like, Man, "How can I afford this?" Uh-huh. But it was at that time, you know, uh, a, a nickel <laughs> would yeah. go a long way. Yeah. Um, but he built this house, and they lived there. Um, you know pretty much to the very end, they lived in this house for, uh, 70, 80 years almost. Um, but he would stand on the porch whenever we'd have these annual, uh, anniversary parties for them every summer, especially as they got on every summer, we'd have an anniversary party for them. And he would stand up on the porch and he would look out and he would count. Uh, he's uh-huh. like, I've got this many great grandbabies and this many great, great grandbabies and this many, and he would just count. And he was, you could tell it's that like it was the counting absolute, your riches. Yes. Yeah. He was, he was like, and he was poor. I mean, they were poor their whole lives, hmm. but seeing him look out on all of these people, you would think that he was a King and that he was oh. the richest man alive because of all of this. And it's not like everybody's perfect. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of drama in the family. There were, it's a, it's a, it's a normal human family, but the richness of that experience was so beautiful. Um, just a powerful thing to, to see that's, and when you're 20, you don't appreciate that. Yeah. And if you get to be 60, 70 and you didn't appreciate it when you're 20 and then you put it off and you, I mean, a lot of people now are posting online about, I don't need to get married. I'm happy traveling the world. And I've gotten, you know, all these things that I pamper myself with. Like that's, that might be kind of fun in your twenties, but it's not cute when you're 60 years old, it's Christmas morning and you have no husband, no wife, no children, no grandchildren, nobody to visit you. You've got your dog or your cat and that's it. Um, that's what we're missing. And this generation don't realize that we're, we're just giving up something that is, it really is beautiful. And God, it's a gift. God gave us this. It's a wonderful, beautiful thing and we're missing it. And that, that makes me, that makes me sad. And it makes me want to be an advocate. I'm like, don't, don't give up on this, at least in the church, yeah. church, Christians. Yeah, I think there was a moment in American history, well, maybe world history, and I believe you and I might have talked about this in a prior conversation. But um, so for the longest time, for all of human history, women had to work hard, and everybody appreciated the work, and it was integrated with the family, and the husband's work related to the home as well. And she, she was a very important part of the hard work conducted by the family. She had her unique roles in that, her unique gifts for those roles and so on. And then along came 
the Industrial Revolution and work was removed out of the home and work she did was. And then along came all kinds of modern labor-saving devices. So she used to spend a whole day doing the laundry, actually starting the night before, soaking it and then <laughs> a whole day. And now she just throws them in the washing machine. And they pop out 20 minutes later and all that. So all these labor-saving devices, which we're very thankful for. I'm not complaining. You know, some people are saying we need to go back to, you know, living all in the land. No, please no. Those, those were rough days, man. But yeah. that came along. And then 1960, you know, the first really reliable and very easily accessible and affordable birth control came along, the, the pill. And so what happened is, and, and then and schools became the big thing. You got all your kids in school. So all of a sudden, the mother found herself home with really nothing to do. Yep. No purpose, no work, nothing that's really valued. So watch sitcoms all day and get depressed and smoke cigarettes and whatever. And so, <laughs> so what was determined at that point by the feminists was, well, the woman needs to be a man. She needs to do what the man's doing. She needs to go leave the home, leave the family if need be, forget all, go find your life in a career. And that was a dead end. That was a downhill slope that didn't end anywhere pretty. Um, and a lot of women discovered that as they got older, maybe got to be 38 years old and said, wait a minute, I think I want a man. <laughs> wait a minute, I think I want children. But if only in that moment when women were left alone in the home and all those devices and modern science, modern medicine stuff just made her life kind of void of much effort, if only believers at least have been able to seize upon it and say, wait a minute, there's another picture here. There's a beautiful yeah. thing that can be happening here. Um, maybe we'd have a very different different nation or at least very different yeah. Christian homes. Yeah. So the, I just mentioned feminism. Let's turn to that. And you talk about it some in your book, and I actually want to read a couple little blurbs here and get you to uh, riff with us on feminism a wee bit. So I'll even give people the page number in case they buy the book. You should buy the book. And on page 11, you write, feminism is now the assumed paradigm in every part of of Western society, so much so that any critique of feminism is considered a critique of femininity itself. Um, you also write, bottom of that paragraph, feminism tries to advance women by making them more manly. Totally agree with that. Mm -hmm. The objective is let's be like men, let's be men, only to find out that now we have transgender and men are better at being women than women. So anyway, it gets convoluted. But yeah. Feminism is the assumed paradigm of every part. You want to talk about that? What do you mean? Why do you say that? Yeah, it, it's the assumptions of feminism have been have been baked in, and the original project of feminism. I mean, it, there's you know people will try to separate first, second, third wave, fourth wave feminism, but the the essential project at the very beginning was the idea that a woman's fertility is a burden. And it's, it mm. impedes her progress in society. And there was a desire to free her from that. Yes. Um, which that's, that's what men are like. Men don't have a yeah. burden of fertility the way women do. Um, so if a woman gets pregnant, then it changes her life. Uh, in, for 20 years in, and forever. Incalculable ways. Mm -hmm. But for a man, he can, his involvement is pretty minor, pretty, pretty brief. And, he can, he can he disappear. Can yeah. So that, that's seen as uh, a, a burden and imposition that is unfair. And if you could say there it's unequal, but I would say it's the inequality is, is true and it is designed that way. It's the beauty. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing because God has designed men and women to work in such a way to where there is a, 
a need for a man to provide for a, a wife who becomes a mother and their children. So this this idea that it's in, it's unequal and that inequality is considered an injustice, it's unfair, mm -hmm. and it's unfair because of the patriarchy that has been imposed upon society. And I would say these things are, are design features. God made it this way. But since it's assumed now, then our whole society has endeavored on this project to, to try to correct that error. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's, you know, gender pay gap. And that that's, we talk about, you know, people talk about, well, we want to make sure women are doing, are getting the same pay for the same work. And we want to smash the glass ceiling. We want women to be leading at every level of society and to treat men and women as though there is absolutely zero difference between them. Just interchangeable. Interchangeable. Yeah. And, and I, there used to be a joke. It's like, well, treat men and women like they're interchangeable except for the plumbing. But now, <laughs> given, like now even the plumbing, huh? now even the plumbing, uh -huh. or at least there's attempts to change that with hormone mm -hmm. treatments and so forth. And so I, I see like the, transgender movement was enabled by the feminist movement, which assumed that men and women can be treated as interchangeable. And feminism mm -hmm. was built upon an idea of Gnosticism, which is the physical body doesn't really matter. Um, and so now it's like we're at this point to where because of transgenderism and the way that just that our, our society at large thinks, it's built upon feminist assumptions that men and women should be the same and that any difference between them is the result of some oppression, some mistreatment, some misogyny. I would argue that those differences are God-given and they're good, but we need to, they can be abused, of course, mm -hmm. but, but they are meant to be for our good, just like the church is designed, where you have a hand, you have a foot, you have an ear, you have a, a nose, a mouth, you have different body parts, but they work interdependently. And a marriage is like a church in in a smaller form where a man and a woman, his gifts, her gifts, her body, his body, they they work together. They create life, they create, but they create more than a life. They work and they create a household. Um, but the the idea of feminism is just like that is bad. Um, hmm. and, and we see that just the destruction. And, and you can look at early feminists that they'll speak openly about it. Oh yeah, uh, their hatred for the family, their desire to destroy the family. I mean, early feminists will say very, very plainly, "This is what we want to do." So, yeah, very much so. Whereas the the uh, uh, what you're describing there, the complementary nature of the, her and her gifts, him and his gifts, and so on, interests, um, again, is just a beautiful thing. If people mm -hmm. could just see that, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So you just mentioned. Um, uh, childbearing several times. And so I want to talk about marriage, sex, and childbearing. You say in the book that marriage, sex, and childbearing naturally go together. Now that's a pretty novel concept in our day, I think. Probably <laughs> all of human history, nobody would have blinked. But uh, let me read from page 74. You say, ultimately, uh, the purpose of these distinctions, male and female, is to create new life. Manhood and womanhood are defined by the goal for which they were made, which is procreation. But we must press further because men and women do not play equal roles in this endeavor. And you go on to talk about that. So uh, marriage and sex, marriage, sex, and childbearing naturally belong together. Why does that need to be said? Um, what's important about that? So the, uh, the design that we see in Genesis is... Uh, God gave Adam 
a, a job, the creation mandate. Um, so he, he had a job to fill the earth. That's uh, Genesis one, Genesis two zoom, uh, you know, it zooms in on the garden, but mm-hmm. also reverses time a little bit to give us another angle before Eve was created. And uh, God said, it's not good that he's alone. And then I've, I've, I've heard this before and I've actually said this before, before I understood it better. I always thought, well, yeah, he's a lonely guy. You know, you got this guy walking around this garden, nobody to talk to, nobody to hang out with. And so God was solving a loneliness problem. But in reality, uh, God was solving a, a bigger problem. Yeah, bigger problem. It's like, well, I, I commanded this man to fill the earth and subdue it. But it's not good for him to be alone because he can't obey me by himself. So the only way that man and woman can fulfill the purpose of humanity, of filling the earth, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, as Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says, they have to do it together. They have to work together. So God created them. You have this job to do, humanity. Fill this earth with worshipers for my glory, and then this earth will be a garden temple that is a worshiping planet. Um, Hmm. that was the, you see, you see the, the seed of that idea in Genesis. Um, and that goal is accomplished through sex. Um, you can't fill the earth with, with more people unless you have a man and a woman and they have a sexual union, but then God joined them together in a covenant. You know, the Lord has, God has joined them together. Jesus said this in, uh, Matthew 19, I believe. So you see like, Children is the is the product, the the initial product of a marriage. Children come from sex. Um, so you need a man and a woman. And then to protect the power of that union, God built a covenant around it and said they are going to be joined together and exclusively committed to one another. And that's the marriage. So marriage, sex, childbearing, these three three things go together. And whenever you start pulling them apart, then you're you're eliminating essential features that is meant to be a composite gift. So if you have, uh, it's like, well, let's have two men and call that marriage. It's like, well, the design of marriage eliminates that That's because two it. men were not made to procreate. Mm-hmm. Or, hey, let's have sex, but let's not have marriage. Well, that's fornication. You can't do that. That mm-hmm. you're 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 playing with fire there, and it's going to do harm. What about um, we're married? Let's have sex, but let's never have children. Yeah, I, so I, I think contraception has given us a technological ability to deny the fruitfulness, the purpose of marriage. I'm not a one that's a maximalist where every sex act needs to be open to the possibility of children. I yeah. would say every marriage should be open to the possibility of, of children. If, of course, in a fallen world, we have infertility, and that's not a sin on the part of the couple. Mm-hmm. But I think every marriage should desire to fulfill the purpose of marriage, uh, even though now through contraception, um, and of course, there are not not all contraception, I think, is is, is an option is for Christians. Yeah. 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 But, but there is... We, we have a little bit more control over that, and I, and I don't think that that in itself is a problem. But I do think it's a problem whenever a married couple just says, you know what, we don't want kids. We don't want kids. Yeah, there needs yeah. to be a conversation there, maybe a bunch of conversations because something's probably gone wrong. So this right. idea that marriage, sex, and childbearing naturally go together, do you think the average 
evangelical Christian family who've just spent the past 20 years in XYZ, whatever church down the street from you, and they decided, now we want someone with a little more meat. We want a little more Bible teaching. That's a rare person, by the way. But anyway, and so they walk through your doors one Sunday, and they hear you say marriage, sex, and childbearing naturally grow together. Do you think they get that? Does the average couple, Christian couple, even get that? Are they even thinking about that? I would say probably not. Um, yeah, I'm with you. It, it's it's the kind of thing that can almost be like a head scratcher, and they'd be like, "Huh, you know, I, I I guess that that makes sense, but I hadn't really hadn't really thought of that before." And that's because we're so conditioned to think that sex only produces a child when we decide that it produces a child, hmm. but otherwise, either through contraception or abortion, that's some. It's like that might be it might be an accident. You know, something we didn't want, so we have to deal with that as a problem. But to think, I think people think like, well, marriage, that's all about personal fulfillment. Um, and sex is all about physical pleasure. Uh, and childbearing, that's a an optional accessory to my life if I choose to, yeah. uh, I want to add that on. Yeah. And, and then people when you are say, waiting no, later I, and later and later in life before they add that on too. And then just yeah. one. Yeah. And, and I think like the pill uh, in particular has enabled us to divorce these three things from one another mm -hmm. to the extent where it's almost like we don't cog consciously realize, oh, wait a minute, these things do, they do go together and God has some, some, uh, some good purpose, some good intent behind creating it this way. I don't think they, I, I think a lot of people probably that's, that may be new to them. Yeah, I think so too. I'm going to move on to another question for you and it's very brief and it's very blunt. Here it is. So how are men and women different? Just the idea that they're different, except for the plumbing, is outrageous in our day. <laughs> Though uh, any psychologist worth their salt will tell you lots of ways in which we have tested, we have the data, the facts are in, we know women, men and women are different, very different in fact, in certain ways, and not so different in other ways. But let me read from page 56 this time. Give me one second, please. Page 56, and you write, <clears throat> Men are not women, and women are not men. Well, that'll get you kicked off Twitter before Elon's days. <laughs> right? that'll, that'll get you thrown off of your platform. Men are not women, and women are not men. Men have male bodies. Now, here we go. Masculine souls. I don't think people, I don't think a lot of Christians even get that. There's a difference of nature. Yeah. It's not just a difference of plumbing, but we're basically the same on the inside unless society shaped us and molded us. No, there's a different nature. There's a different soul, as you call it. And masculine duties, uh, men have masculine duties that God calls them to embrace. Women have female bodies, feminine souls. Oh, man, if men understood more about that, it would help a lot of marriages. <laughs> and feminine duties that God calls them to embrace. I think that's really, really crucial for people to understand and nobody understands it because we're being told and told and brainwashed to think bodily. But you want to talk about that? How are men and women different? What's the difference between a male's nature and a female's nature? Are you up on that? Yes. Um, the, the, the chapter that you're quoting from there is called Embodied Souls. And Christian theology teaches that there's – so Gnosticism is the idea that we want to pull apart the body and the soul – um, and so we, we, we want to say like, well, there, there's this body, but that's kind of a prison. Uh, that's not really who I am. Who I am is, is actually just who I am on the inside. 
but my body is just this housing and it doesn't really matter, doesn't determine much about me. Hmm. That's Gnostic thinking, that Gnosticism being like a formal, like a philosophy that has had a renaissance now in today's world, which whenever the transgender movement is built on a, a thoroughly Gnostic understanding of the body, which is my body doesn't match my soul. Um, we see in Genesis, the word used for creation, uh, for, for man, for woman is a, it, it indicates that we are living souls. So God created man and he became a living soul, meaning that there is a, uh, the body and the spirit are, these are meant to go together. So who we are as a man and who we are as a woman is an embodied soul. So from that, we, we, there, the things like our bodies tell us something about our, our very nature. Whenever Jesus comes back and we're resurrected and we spend eternity with God, we will spend eternity with God as men and as women eternally. So Steve Hartland, when I get to see you in heaven, you will be a man. And my I'm also wife, going to be four inches taller than I am. Right now. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> there is yeah, You'll be able to slam dunk like Shaquille O'Neal. That's right. <laughs> but like we'll be men and women in in heaven. Um, Jesus's resurrection body was still a man. He did not become mm, this androgynous kind of carbon unit, but he's still <laughs> very much a man. And so, the question I was trying to to get at in the early chapters of the book is: What does masculine mean? What does feminine mean? And not merely derived from aggregated data of men that we know and women that we know, but is there something hardwired? And yeah. I would say, yes, there is. Mm -hmm. And it is because God designed men and women and their sexuality to do something, and that is to reproduce. So fatherhood is the basic shape of masculine virtue. Uh, motherhood is the basic shape of feminine virtue. Even if a man is not a father, and even if a woman doesn't actually become a mother, the virtues are still shaped by fatherhood and motherhood. And can and, be active in the world. It can be act right. Yeah. So you see that God gave man and woman duties in the garden, and that's because they are equipped with bodies and natures that are conducive to those duties. Yep. So Adam, God put him in the garden and said, you're here to work it and to keep it. So you're to cultivate something, build something. You're to protect it. You're to keep it. You're protected. Um, and he is the head of the garden. He is uh, the head of his wife. You see this in Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 11. So there's this leadership, uh, uh, headship component uh, of masculinity. So you hear lead, provide, protect as the basic shape of, of masculine duty. Mm -hmm. And God has given him not merely a, a stronger, bigger, more aggressive body, and a more, but he's, he also has a nature that is more wired and oriented toward those things. Yes. With Eve, she was uh, God created her to to be a helper to his to her husband. Prime, the the most immediate help is the help that to to be a mother uh, to help him fill the earth as God commanded Adam uh, Adam and Eve to do together. And as a helper, that she is relational. God created her from Adam's side, so she is she is made to be connected. She is far more relationally oriented. Mm -hmm. um, but also life comes from her whenever she gets pregnant. Um, she is a home. Her body transforms itself into a home. 
And then even after a child is born, she nurtures and feeds a child from her own body. She's meant to be one to provide nourishment and sustenance. So you see this, the, the man is, is, is given a nature that is oriented towards, I want to build something. I want to protect it. I want to, I want to lead out. That's, that is a, that is a more in the masculine disposition. A feminine disposition is like, I want to transform this environment into a home. I want to make it a place to bring people together. I'm going to uh, feed and nurture and, uh, and show hospitality. Women are uniquely gifted at that. And then in the, in the wonder of God's design, you have so much overlap. You have a lot yes. of guys that have some, some nurturing tendencies. Uh, you have a lot of women who are more aggressive and they, and like that, that the individual exceptions to the general pattern do not, th those things can be just the color and the flavor that makes it all awesome and beautiful. Yes. Yeah. So there's going to be some interchangeability, but men and women, they work these things out together. But the overall pattern is like a masculine soul, a masculine nature. God has given him and given her a feminine soul, a feminine nature that is generally oriented to the duties that God has called them both yes. to. And again, it's beautiful. Yes. It's wonderful. Delight in it. Don't fight it. Love it. Embrace it. Live it. And yeah. uh, it'll give you joy. So I want to talk about a couple of things related to this. So one of them is... Um, so in evangelicalism, we've got the two camps basically on the gender differentiated commands in the Bible. We've got egalitarianism, men and women should be equal. Any hierarchy was a result of the fall. We're undoing the fall in Christ, so there's no more hierarchy. Uh, and then there's complementarianism. That's a long mouthful. Yeah. I, I was told, I read that John Piper made up that term, and that sounds just like a term, John Piper. <laughs> complementarianism. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I think one of the big, my opinion, and I wonder what you think, one of the big things they missed, one of the big weaknesses there was they did not link the distinctive roles to the natures, to varying natures. There was zero or little talk about varying natures. It was almost as if, of uh, somebody had to be head in the home and God flipped the coin. Gabriel, come over here. You call it. Heads, yeah. you know, the guy will be head. Tails, the girl will be head. Oh, it's heads. The guy's head. And like it could have gone either way because they're basically the same anyway. Um, I think that's been a big deficiency in complementarianism that's maybe coming home to bite it because the longer you're a complementarian, you might say, well, wait a minute. I've been thinking about this for 15 years now. And why can't a woman be a pastor? She's got the same abilities, same gifts, same talents, same drive, same interests. No, she really doesn't. Different yeah. interests. So now I want to talk about psychology a little bit too. So I've gotten interested in psych. I know psych is not the word of God. I'm really interested in the word of God and everything else we'll take with a grain of salt and be cautious about. But there are some, there are many world-class psychologists, most of whom, by the way, are women, very mm. bright, very capable women, but women turn to psychology because they're, well, here's one of the number one findings. What are the differences they find between men and women? And their number one finding is men are interested in things and systems. Yep. And women are interested in people and relationships. Yep. So the systems of humans, relationship, the system of things, systems. And uh, they're very different in that regard. Maybe the second thing or a very close second place would go to uh, 
um, men are made to. They are fueled by testosterone to be different in a lot of ways. They're, uh, they're fueled to be more aggressive, and women are definitely more nurturing, relationship building, group building, and so on. Um, so it's beautiful. Don't fight it. Don't say, no, we need to level yeah. the whole thing. It's male patriarchy oppression. Accept it. Love it. Embrace it. It'll make you, it'll, it'll bring you joy into your life. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, oh, Steve, you said so many things there. Uh, so, so many great things there. Um, I'll, I'll re- respond to what, what you just said recently and maybe work my way backward to some of the other things. Um, the, I, I think it's generally true. I, I, and I mentioned that in the book about men being oriented to, to the world of things generally, women generally, generally being right. oriented to the world yeah. of people. Um, and if you think about it, like God created Adam and Eve and called them to, to subdue the earth, to expand the borders of Eden. Um, and that means like Eden is the garden, but beyond the garden is an unsubdued world. It's an uncharted wild that uh, would need to be uh, subdued in some way. So that is going to be like a man is going to look to the horizon, like what needs to be done? What do I need to do? So presumably uh, the, the man would, would, would uh, subdue this, this territory and a, the woman would backfill it and, and transform it into a home. Hmm. So he is outward oriented. She is more inward oriented. Yep. Our, our bodies, I don't, <clears throat> not to be graphic about it, but you can imagine a man's body does in the sexual union, he is designed for initiative. Her body is designed for response. And you, you can't build an entire theology around that, but it, it is indicative of just the general nature of, of men and women for him to be wanting to do stuff and for her wanting to connect people. Yes. Men benefit from the connecting strength of women. Um, my wife, she did this this morning. She handed me a stack of birthday cards to fill them out. Oh, she bless her. Yeah. Wow. But I would never do that. Uh-huh. <laughs> but that's, but she's good at that because she wants to, connect and love and, and express that with people. And I'm so glad she does because that's us loving someone, but she is using her strength to do that. Um, <clears throat> so the, I, the, so the complementarian word, I used to, I used to like the word. I don't like it as much now. Yeah, I'm um, and so the word patriarchy, I think is the better word, but it's got baggage. It freaks people out because it sounds like, you know, some, uh, Attila the Hun. Yeah. But I con- like it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I think complementarian, what the word was crafted to, I think to be a bit of a, com- a, a, a halfway house hmm. between egalitarianism, which is like men and women are interchangeable on the one hand. And then patriarchy, which says men are, are designed to, to lead, um, and for headship. Complementarianism said, well, that's men should lead in the home and in the church because the Bible explicitly has commands to that effect, but it doesn't root it in nature because they wanted to avoid any implication that men should also lead in society at large. So a husband is the head of the home. Um, Male qualified elders are heads of the church, but just because God said so. We don't know yeah, why. It's arbitrary. It's uh-huh. just yeah, right. But um, a woman can be president of the United States. And it's like that, that there's a disconnect there. 
Um, and, and I think that a lot of people, they don't, they don't want to draw the inference um, from scripture that maleness and femaleness means something beyond merely the house and the church, but there is something within our nature that men generally are made to, to lead and to protect, provide. That's what is good for men. Women yeah. are made to, uh, for, for relation and intimacy and to, uh, or, or for, uh, building homes and nurturing and domesticated environments. Um, so that, so complementarianism, I think it was a, was a way to avoid the full implications of it. And what that does, as you said, it makes it all seem arbitrary. It's just like a coin flip. Yeah. Why does he get to be the head of the well, home? We had this exact thing happen about a year, year and a half ago in our church. There was a woman in our church. I'll leave her unnamed for obvious reasons. She's no longer part of our church. But <laughs> she first she was saying she had decided she became an evangelical or a feminist, really, because she decided that the the hard passages where Paul delineates male-female roles, um, that she didn't think they're the word of God. So she started yeah. finding holes in her Bible. She started picking and choosing smorgasbord Bible. And then with some pushback against her about that, she decided, well, all right, I, I'll, I'll accept it all as the word of God. But then with you, like this kind of attitude, like hand on the hips, like, but I don't get it. Why would God? I mean, a woman can be, like you said, she can be the chairman of, of you know, the CEO of IBM or whatever. Why couldn't a woman be? And like a real complaining attitude about it. Hmm. And she'd been in churches for a long, long, long time and never heard anything or never accepted anything about because there are differences of nature. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And that sounds like if, if somebody's never heard that their entire life and they're hearing it, uh, from a straight white man, uh, <laughs> <laughs> later on in life and they've been conditioned by feminist thinking to say, well, that's mansplaining, that's patriarchy, mm -hmm. that, that might even be misogyny that yeah. if, if he's, if he's an authority position of authority, like a senior pastor, that might even be abuse, might even be abuse of power. The tracks are already laid for a narrative to say, Steve Hartland, he's an abusive tyrant. And for that to be plausible because our thinking is already conditioned to accept that narrative. When what scripture would lead us to do is to say, God made us this way. Can we take him at his word, receive what he has given us, including the restrictions that he's given us? And you'll, you can tell where our values lie in that there aren't men who are complaining about the fact that they are not capable of giving birth. That's not considered an injustice. That's not something we complain about. And it's because like everybody wants to, to fight over this territory that belong, that, that God has given uh, to men. So it's like, why can't a woman be a pastor in a church? Why is, why must a woman submit to her husband? And it's like, that is seen as the, the, the place to be where there's the most blessing, the most happiness, the most goodness. But that's not what God says. God said, this is his duty. And there is a particular blessing that's there, but there's also a blessing in submission. There's a blessing in creating homes. There's a blessing in giving life. I mean, what, what a powerful and wonderful gift it is that God has enabled women to give life. Apart from women, there would be no people. They all, yep. well, everybody comes from a woman. Yep. Um, and so that's a, that's a good thing. I, I just think we're, there's envy. There's a reject of God's design. There's a lack of trust and faith in his word. And it's, it, it does harm. I mean, it, it, this has caused it, our friction and competition between the sexes to escalate. Well, we just have a whole generation of, oh, I don't know, I guess um, university professors and others who are, who are determined to 
cultivate envy. <laughs> right, yeah. grievance. Yeah. yeah, grievance. Yeah, yeah it's like our envy society. and I'm mad about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. All right, so um, let's see. I, we're going to run out of time, and I have a bunch more things to talk about. So I'm going to pick and choose. You've noticed I've picked and ch- chosen a little bit already, but I do want to stop on the topic of androgyny. What is androgyny? Would you give us a definition of that? What's that about? Would you? Yes, uh, the the root words behind it. Um, it's a compound word. Um, andros meaning male, masculine, and gynos meaning feminine, female. And so androgyny is the blending of the two. Um, so it's it is it is a it is a blending of the two and a blurring of the distinction. So in our I've heard Christians teach this. I've heard Christians teach that men and women are mostly the same with only a few differences. Let's focus on the ways that we're the same. Hmm. The same thing is said of animals. They'll say humans and chimpanzees share. Yeah, we're almost the same. Yeah, ninety-eight percent of the, uh, whatever uh-huh. the percentages of DNA. But I'm like, I'm like, the, it's it's not the similarities that matter. Yeah. It's the differences yeah. is is the is is really the importance. And yeah. so the which, Bible. Which books have they written? Which cities have they built? <laughs> it's like, well, they're hanging off a tree somewhere. <laughs> but, but right. It, so the androgyny is that is where the where we're being pressured. So in, in the church, uh, egalitarianism um, is men and women should be interchangeable. Um, women should be pastors of a church just as a man as a pastor of a church. Um, woman and man, there is no man. It's no requirement for men to be head of the home. But you have to you have to to uh, undermine scripture to come to those conclusions because the Bible does teach it. So the but the Bible it's like there's there are commands given to men and commands given to women and it seems like the Bible is always highlighting these distinctions so that we are living in line with God's design for men and for women and receiving these things as gifts of God and not um, biting and devouring one another as James says mm-hmm. which is which is really a, a lot of the way this plays out typically. So androgyny is a, it, it, of course, the ex, most extreme versions of androgyny is more transgenderism. Um, and, you know, they, it's like, well, we're going to call this non-binary. We're going to call this queer, gender queer, two-spirit. I mean, I, I can't keep track of all the, all the various labels, mm-hmm. but it's, it's rooted in this idea that there is no male or female and that that is actually the more transcendent, the more heightened human experience is to loose ourselves from the boundaries of our male or female bodies, but to become this, this higher plane. it's Gnosticism repackaged. And, you know, uh, I don't know if you're planning on getting into this later, but uh, that is, it is, I have a part of my book. We're just talking about that is a, that is of pagan origin. And uh, there's um, uh, Ishtar. That's the, uh, there's a, Another, there are other names that she goes by, but this pagan goddess, but she's a, she, she can appear as male or female. And that was considered as the optimal or ideal, um, form of spirituality is to transcend our bodies. So it's, it's got roots. It's not merely somebody's sexual desires and orientation or something like that. It is, there's, there's something very deep and spiritual underneath the whole movement towards androgyny. Yeah. So I'll give you a personal anecdotal story about androgyny. So uh, my sister, who's older than me, lives in Boston. 
and uh, she's not a Christian, and she's a very left-leaning person in all kinds of ways. Her daughter, that would be my niece, um, majored in women's studies, stuff like that. Um, So my sister's daughter had a son, and she and her boyfriend or husband decided that they would raise the son in an androgynous way so that he could determine which gender he wanted to identify with later in life. So they would literally dress him in girls' stuff and give him girls' toys one day and dress him in boys' stuff and give him boys' toys the next day. And it went on like that for years till they realized, no, he likes trucks. (laughs) And they did figure that out. He just came out liking trucks and slamming them into block walls and stuff. So definitely masculine stuff. But that's the way they raised him. Wow. Now, let's think about people in the church. Have you noticed a tendency, maybe in some really uh, high-visibility mega churches, the worship leader, the first time you see it, you're not sure, is this a male or a female, the androgynous <laughs> worship leader? Have you seen that? Yes. Uh, it, Our worship I mean, leader has a nice beard, man. I like that. <laughs> well, yeah. If you think about who wrote most of the Psalms, is King David a manly man? Um, Mm. And so I would say on the one hand, um, art and expression, those are not, those are not feminine uh, in in and of themselves. Of course, women, there are feminine, women have feminine expressions of art and men, but a lot of times they're, they're more, they, they, they seem to become more the domain of uh, women and effeminate men. And so I think it's important in churches that you don't alienate the men by making them participate in something that feels girly. And a lot uh, of the music is girly. It's just about feelings. Yeah. Close your and eyes like, and sway and feel this. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So I, I saw this. Instead of like this, manly psalms about we're going to war, you know, we're going right. to kill the enemy. <laughs> I, I saw this clip going around the internet the other day, um, and it was like a few guys, and they were just they were. It was a podcast, but they were talking about worship music. And this guy said, "All right, guys, I want to read you a quote from a song lyric that is sung in a church." And it was like, "Fill me, Daddy God," or something like that. Ooh. And all the guys were like, "Oh!" And they're like cringing. You could tell there's having this visceral reaction because it's just just it, it's awkward, and a lot of times it has some romanticized uh romanticized language in it 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 feels like love songs to jesus that that yes. have a romantic very emotional it's very emotional and a, it, it is less awkward for a woman to sing about a love for a man in a way that might have a hint of romance to it and a, and a lot of women that is there is a bit of that uh divine romance i think is a book that was published and it's like that that will cater to to a woman's sensibilities, and I and I think that is appropriate to her feminine nature. But it is it is unnatural for men to approach their relationship with God in any sort of romantic way that is like God is a lover. Like the, I remember the song from Hillsong. This is twenty years ago. Jesus, lover of my soul. I mean, you, somebody could get technical and argue like, well, Jesus is one who loves you. He loves your soul. Therefore, he's the lover of your soul. But that's not the way we normally use the word lover. Lover is typically romantic. And so it alienates a lot of men. Um, I don't know what was, their song was, by the way, but th- there is an, an old hymn that's very good, Jesus, Lover of My Soul. Oh, so, yeah? Yeah, so check it out. 
<laughs> yeah, I'll have to look that up. All right. I, I was at a conference a couple uh, weeks ago that was, you know, very much a, you know, strong on men being men and so forth. And a, a guy, Brian Sovey, uh, he was there leading some of the music. And, you know, he's he, he, he really wants to help men be masculine in the church. Yeah, I've been listening to some of his music. Yeah, which a lot of most of it is psalms, mm-hmm. um, psalm like, but but he tries to keep the the meter and the actual words and the language and to do the entire text of a psalm and um, and he's it's become very popular, you know, his stuff because I think there's he's tapping into a need. But I noticed at this conference, even the way that that the men sang, there was it was a there was a lot of it, it there's a lot of baritone. And it was at mm-hmm. a, a certain kind of meter. I think you mentioned like Onward Christian Soldiers or something like that earlier. It's like some of these songs, they have they, they have a feel that men can relate to. So, and of course, the Psalms, they deal with justice. They deal with righteousness. Um, there's, you know, even going to war as a yes. righteous war. Men can relate to that better. Um, and it helps them to, ha- it helps to have music that, that can cultivate a masculine faith. Manly music. Yeah, you don't. Men don't want to feel like they're masculine. It has to be checked at the door whenever they come to church, and that's why a lot of guys have checked. That was a book, uh, David Morrow, "Why Men Hate Going to Church." Yes. Um, it's a, it's a fascinating read. Or they come to church and while everybody's singing, they just stand there. Yep. I'm not going to sing that. I can't get into that. Not doing it. There's yeah. there's kind of thousand yard stare. <laughs> All right, I want to keep you for a few more minutes, if I may, and we've got to talk about what you say on pages right around 207, 208, 209 about working mothers, because I really like the way you uh, slice it and dice it. So you know, one could respond to things we've been talking about today was saying, well, then no woman should ever have a job. She's never have a job outside of the house, et cetera, et cetera. But, but I really like the way you put this together. So I want to read from a little bit here. On 207, you say, um, this is under a heading, Working Mothers. Additionally, many families simply cannot survive on the father's income alone, so they have no other option but for the mother to go to work. That's true, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That's the economy we've created. That's the way we want it to be in our nation. That's what it is. Um, That's what – oh, who's the guy who just came out with this song, uh, Rich Man, North of Richmond, and he's singing. Uh, Anthony Oliver. (laughs) Anthony Oliver, yeah. That's like his stage name. Yeah, and they don't pay me a decent wage and all that. And it's true, you know, so it's hard to support a family with one income. And then uh, you go on to say uh, on page 208, in my view, and I love this, the husband is responsible to free his wife to prioritize her home. So he does everything in his power to earn enough money to provide for his household, and he and his wife work together to build a lifestyle around his income rather than dual incomes. Man, that's big. Like one reason why some Christian mothers don't stay home is because then we can't have the big house and a Porsche and a BMW like all our neighbors do, so I have to go to work. Bad choices. So you talk about uh, the benefits of stay-at-home motherhood, but then you also say, uh, households, this is on page 209, households should prioritize the mother staying home with her children as much as possible. But if this is not possible, it's not a sin. So I really like the way you're putting that. Talk about it a little bit, would you? Yeah, th- this is something I've dealt with uh, a lot, and it's a it's a sensitive issue. Uh, women, A lot of women mothers, they have mommy guilt already because mm-hmm. um, it's a hard job and you don't get a lot of 
you don't get the performance reviews once a quarter from somebody that could say, okay, yeah. you, it, it, it is a constant thing and you, it's easy for a woman to feel like she's failing um, because she's raising a, a child that has sin. So um, there's mommy guilt. And then when you add to that, um, if she has to work, um, then that, that can compound the mommy guilt. So what I want to, what I want to do, and this is the way I approach it in, in my church is try to try to make the case early, uh, when people are, we do, we have pre-engagement counseling and then we do premarital counseling and then marriage counseling as early as possible before people are really established in a lifestyle, just say like, Hey, build your lifestyle around your husband's income. So that way, when children come along, you have maximal freedom for the wife to prioritize her home. Um, but in some situations to do, there's just simply not enough money. And of course there's what constitutes a luxury, what constitutes a need. Um, mm. you can have, you can have that, uh, you know, those conversations all day long and, and it's a wisdom decision. It's not something that I would be willing to say you are in sin wife for working. Uh, my wife, she works two days a week at a pregnancy resource center. Cool. Um, so it's, it's not something that, I don't think it's a sin to do so. Yeah. It's something that we, she, but when the kids were young, she stayed at home full time. And that was, that was something that we, we, we really prioritized, but, it, but it's a delicate issue and it needs to be pursued with wisdom. And so like, I think a, a couple can have, they can approach wisdom once they have been settled in the grace of Jesus, freedom of the gospel. It's, this is not a matter of law. Uh, because in our modern economy, there are just things that we have to account for. And that's why I devoted uh, you know, a couple of chapters to talking about the household and how our modern context is different from the ancient world. But it is, it, it is, a, is a difficult issue. And so I think like as much as you can, make sacrifices, plan for it, do everything you can, especially when the kids are little, to, for the mother to be there as much as possible. Um, and then... If, if, if necessary, um, at some point in the future, um, it's not a sin to work. Yeah. Another thing that I would say is just that when it comes to a thing that we have to think about now is schools are not the schools I grew up in and maybe you grew up in. Um, we, ha we have to think long and hard about our duty to educate our children and to not merely let the default be, I want to outsource this to my neighborhood elementary school. Because those are targeted by activists to not to, to groom them explicitly in a, a view of sexuality that is contrary to God's design. So yes, and the idea that I want to send my kids into that to be missionaries is ill-founded, no. uh, ill-conceived. <laughs> no, if we would, uh, that's why we have assessments for missionaries. <laughs> yes, uh, it's like we good. say, like you're not ready for this. You're not strong enough. You're not mature enough to go be a missionary to to, to Japan or whatever. So why would we subject our children to that? That I, I think it's a foolish argument. But but another another thing we have to calculate for now is just the incessant pressure. And it's not just okay, my kid has a good teacher, so they're fine. It's like no, it's it's a teacher. It's the curriculum. It's their classmates. It's who they're spending their time with. It's if your third grader is the only kid in the class that doesn't have a smartphone, uh, mm, doesn't have social media, man. then that's going to affect them. The environment, the social environment they're in is critical. So I think going forward, it is 
it is as important as ever, if not more. more. I, I mean, I would say it's more, more. important now yeah. to not merely think about, okay, it's good for the baby's psychological health to have mommy there to nurse and to take care when kids one, two, three, four years old. But how are my kids going to be educated and as much as possible, do everything you can to provide the kids with a Christian education. Um, and again, it's, I know a lot of people where public school is just the only way they can go. And I think a church help them, support them, pray for them. Yeah. We have to recognize that. That is true. Yeah, help them. But a lot of people have options, but they don't think they have options. Yeah. There's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. So a uh, little bit of switch of subject here, back to something you talked about earlier. Um, should a mother have a job? And I think COVID's done us a favor in that regard, and so many jobs came home. So I'm thinking of a family in our church. They have a couple of boys. They're like this big. And uh, the husband is a PhD in mechanical engineering and physics. And the wife is a CPA and works for a bank, and they're both full-time. And they're both home all day, almost every day, and they can raise those boys. Now, they do send them out to be educated somewhere, but uh, still, I have no problem at all with her being a full-time CPA in her job, especially since she can work from home. She can say, wait a minute, I got to leave, you know, check out for a minute, go deal with my son. So uh, you feel good about a thing like that too? I think in situations like that, there's case by case, It's there's so much pastoral wisdom. So mm -hmm. you know this family. Uh, I'm assuming they're in your church. Yeah. So if you know them, you're their pastor, you know, like what is his maturity? What is her maturity? Do they have an understanding of their duty before God and to one another to raise these children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? And do they have the capacity, the skill, the wisdom, the strength to, to compensate for the challenges that will come mm -hmm. with having two full-time mom and dad? Yeah. There are some people that, that they may not have the maturity or they may not have the capacity. Um, so I think, I think it's, it is a, there's a lot of wisdom and I'm very careful to not prescribe. Yeah. Case I like by to, case. Huh? Yeah. I like to advocate for, for wise decisions uh, and to be honest with yourself. Um, but I think like, let's say what there, there, there's distracted parenting is uh, that's a thing. Um, I'm, I'm convicted of this all the time. Like I'm looking at my phone or something and my kids are talking to me and I'm like, I'm like, I've got to put this thing down this. And so if you're, if you're home working, then, uh, better than being in an office and the child in daycare, nevertheless, uh, the, the, the value of having mom and dad home is so that there is presence, um, and they can be able to talk to the child and teach the child. So a lot that there, there's a lot of things to factor in, I, but I don't, I, I wouldn't prescribe sin or whatever. It, it's, it is a lot of prudential wisdom type decisions. Yeah. That was something I really appreciated about your book, that you recognized there's no one size fits all here, case by case and according to wisdom. Yep. Yeah. Michael, this has been wonderful. I really enjoyed this time with you. Wish we lived next door to each other or maybe not next oh, door. Yeah. Then we'd get mad at each other over something. Wish we lived <laughs> in the same community. And uh, I'm, I'm going to draw us to a close by going to your next to last page, page 310. And on it, you, uh, this is going to take us back to where we began. You write near the bottom of that page, men rejoice in being a man. Rejoice in your strength. Grow into a father for other young men and women in your church. Women 
Rejoice in being a woman. Rejoice in your fertility. Even if you do not have biological children, there are many spiritual orphans in our midst who would benefit from the nurturing care of a spiritual mother. Parents, teach this to your kids. And it goes on a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. That's how you close your book. Um, That's a very good way of summarizing what you're after in this book. You want people to rejoice in the beauty of the roles that God has created us for and the natures he's given us with that fit those roles. So uh, thank you for writing this book. Thank you for making it available. Thank you. We'll have to have a podcast again sometime, eh? Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on, Steve. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this on your show and um, appreciate your encouragement and support too. It's a pleasure. Let me say to all our listeners, thank you for being with us on Grounded today. We come out, as you probably already know, uh, twice a month on most or all of the major platforms. Hope to see you again here. Well, I wouldn't really see you, would I? Hope you'll see me again here. That doesn't sound very good either. Hope we do this again. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>